have a wonderful opportunity to hear some great commentary about professional football with Richmond Times Dispatch sports columnist Paul Woody and Pro Football Hall of Famer Willie Lanier. Paul Woody is the sports columnist for the Richmond Times Dispatch. He joined Richmond newspapers in 1979 as a sports writer covering high schools. Since then, he's also covered state colleges, the Washington Redskins, and the NFL. Some of his specific research interests include concussions, the future of football, and the economic impact of the NFL on a city. He began his World of Woody column in 2009, which I can attest to is extremely entertaining and informative. So if you haven't checked that out, I recommend you do the World of Woody videos. Woody also has undergraduate and graduate degrees in English from VCU. So let's give a warm VHS welcome to veteran Richmond Times-Dispatch uh, sports columnist Paul Woody. Our next speaker is Willie Edward Lanier. He was born in Clover, Virginia, and graduated from Maggie Walker High School in 1963 as a star football player. He attended Morgan State University, where he became a two-time small college All-American. A second round pick by the Kansas City Chiefs in, in the 1967 draft, Lanier became the first African-American to play middle linebacker, the position often described as the quarterback of the defense. In 1970, he was a defensive star in the Chiefs Super Bowl IV victory over the Minnesota Vikings. He played a total of 11 seasons and missed only one game in his last 10 years. He was nicknamed Contact because of his aggressive tackling. He had 27 interceptions in his career, 18 fumble recoveries, and played in eight All-Star games, and was the winner of the 1972 Vitalis Man of the Year Award for his community volunteer work and excellence on the field. You can actually see that award upstairs. We have a display for some of Mr. Willie Lanier's items. Lanier was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1986 and is known as one of the greatest football players of all time. Since retiring from the game and returning to Richmond, Lanier has become a successful business executive. He's active in many charitable causes and has been extremely generous in lending some of his personal items to the VHS for the duration of Gridiron Glory. These items are a glimpse into the storied career of Willie Lanier, and you can see them upstairs. Please give a warm VHS welcome to a Virginian and a Pro Football Hall of Famer, Willie Lanier, as we begin our chat with Willie and Woody. Well, Willie, as I sit here, I'm wondering, why was your introduction so much longer than mine? I'm curious about that. Well, I played the game of tab longer, Paul. Did you? Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Well, since I never played in a tad long game, so. <laughs> if you don't mind, I want to go back to the beginning. You graduated from Maggie Walker High School, but you were born in Clover, which is in Halifax County. Yeah. How did you get to Richmond? My grandparents were tobacco farmers in Halifax County. My mother happened to be pregnant with me and gone down to visit her mother and father, and I happened to arrive while we were there. Uh, they were already living in Richmond, so uh, that's how my place of birth is in Clover. But I never lived there, but uh, spent summers there in the tobacco fields uh, that they, they raised. Yes. 
But that was a lot of fun. It, it really was because the it's interesting. You develop your work ethic in different places and different time. And with that, the thing that I found was that as hard as it is for the players to be playing now and the heat and humidity, the last time I worked was in those tobacco fields because you were up all day, sun up to sundown. Then you took the tobacco plants and put them in a barn that was a closed roof system, and that's what you did. So the thing that was interesting is that it developed a work ethic that really gives you the base for the rest of your life. Good to know. So you come back to, you grew up in Richmond, you go to Maggie Walker, and in 1963, you go to Morgan State. And I'm curious about what recruiting was like for high school players in 1963, and I'm curious about if today's system was in effect, where high school players are so well-known and so well-researched, um, would you have gone to Morgan State? Would the role of historically black colleges and universities been as prominent uh, then, uh, now, as they were then? Well, it's, it's a broad question because now, obviously, with media and all of that, young men see the opportunities are very varied. I wouldn't have been recruited as highly from the major colleges if it were now coming out of school based on what I'm going to say about the growth spurts I had and the timing of those things occurred. So uh, this young man sitting over here, Don Ross, we called him Cisco, grew up in the same part of the West End, Richmond that I did. I had a brother who was very well muscled, but I was not that one. I only weighed 155 as a 10th grade at Maggie Walker. So I didn't make the team. I was a JV player at Maggie Walker my 10th grade year. So what happens going to the country that next year I come back and I weigh 190. So I become a player at Maggie Walker. Then the next year, I go to the country again, and I come back for my senior year at 205. Still not big enough to be recruited by the major colleges. So what happened is that since the uh, major white colleges were not recruiting black players in the South, most of those who were doing it in the North were recruiting position players in this way, quarterbacks, defensive backs, receivers. The interior part of the, the line, be it the centers and the offensive linemen, defensive linemen, you didn't find black players. So you certainly didn't find them in the middle linebacker standpoint. So what happened from the summer in 1963 when I graduated from Maggie Walker, I probably weighed about 210 at that moment in time. But by September, I weighed 245. <laughs> so what happened is that I had verbally told Virginia State that I would attend their school. Verbally had not signed anything. And July of that year, I decided that being in Virginia with all of the racial issues with the things in Prince Edward County were comfortable to me, so I called the coach at Morgan State. And my journey was really a walk-on. So I called the coach at Morgan State, and I hadn't told my parents about it. And I said to him that I was interested in attending his school. My quarterback from Morgan, from Maggie Walker, had signed with Morgan. So he told me, son, I don't know anything about you. I said, well, what do you need to know? He said, I need to have film of your playing and have a transcript. So I sent that to him, uh, caught a Greyhound bus, went to Baltimore, and I was a very serious individual at that point in time. So he had me take the entrance exam. I think I scored in the top 10% of incoming freshman class because I had skills above the grade because that's just the way it was. So then he said he didn't have any money. And I said, I didn't ask you for money. I said, I want to attend your school. So whatever 
I need to do to be there that first semester, I will take care of it. The academic and athletic work will be so good that whatever you all need to do, in the future you'll do. So that's how I went to school. Well, I just want to say that in terms of going from 145 to 180 to 205, I can do that now. <laughs> uh, the payoff's not quite as high. I feel very confident that it can be achieved. Um, so uh, Morgan State and those that were, were there, were those called college divisions then? Were they called Division II? Uh, I think it was called Division II. Yeah. yeah. Those are very important to you and to a number of other uh, black players. Um, now it's, it's so different. Because um, if Ohio State sees a talented player, they're going to go and get yeah. that guy. Right. Um, do you lament sort of the, the emphasis on those schools that were so important in your career? Or do you just think this is part of the natural evolutionary progress? I think... It's progress, but it's progress that has to be viewed very closely because it still requires that the essence is education. You're going for the education. If the athletic programs have been good, that's fine. But if you're going for anything less than the education, you're missing something. Because obviously there's no guarantee you get to the sport that pays you. There's no guarantee that you stay healthy if you get to the sport that pays you. The essence of a university, I was on the board of Virginia State for eight years. We were the group that hired Eddie Moore, who's done great things for that university. The education is paramount. Morgan State is paramount. I'm on the foundation board at Morgan State. I've been for the last five years. And I've continued to express that everywhere. So when I came to Kansas City, and you have the other person who was drafted the same round that I was, Jim Lynch. Jim was a student first at Notre Dame. I was a student first at Morgan. We had come being drafted for the same position, but he started a law program his first year. I started an MBA program my first year. So from two different poles, but people who had maturity as a part of their background, completion of a degree as the other part, and that's the kind of model that I have always felt needs to exist. So you finish up at Morgan State, and the uh, 67 draft comes around. Did you have any idea that you were on a draft board, that you would uh, be drafted? I know that there were a lot of scouts who would come to the school and talk to you about <laughs> what they thought you might have as far as their interest, but no one was really giving you an indication of what level that it might occur. And, of course, it didn't have anywhere near the kind of coverage it has now, so I was aware of the date that the draft would occur, but was not sitting around somewhere hopeful as to what might occur. <laughs> you weren't going to pre-draft camps and working on no, how to no, get your 40 time up and all of that. No, no. So no. prevalent now. Did you even have an agent? No, I did not. No, I was a business major at Morgan and felt competent to discuss those things so, myself. So did you cut a good deal? I cut a very good deal. It oh. took a little time. Uh-huh. Yeah, I won't go into detail. It took some time. But at that moment because of the way things were in, in America. Uh, there was a view that players at historically black colleges could be gotten cheaper than the other players at other colleges because you might not know. And it was very interesting for me that the first black executive in the National Football League 
was named Buddy Young. And he and my college coach were high school classmates in Chicago. So we had data. And with the data that we had, I didn't sign until I arrived in Kansas City my rookie year. And I was very forceful about whether I had to or not to play pro football because I was there to get the degree. So it was very different for me in terms of the process. Mm -hmm. So you're the 50th player taken. Um, that puts you in the second round. You were taking a couple of picks behind Jim Lynch, yes. who you just mentioned, in Notre yeah. Dame. And if I, I think our conversations over the years, if I remember correctly, he also was drafted to play middle linebacker, was he not? Yes, he was. Mm -hmm. So here we are in training camp with a Notre Dame guy, uh, a Notre Dame white guy, if I may right, say that. Right, right. And here you are from Morgan State. Yeah. I'm not sure how many people in Kansas City had heard of Morgan <laughs> State. Yeah. And you come to training camp, and you're playing so well that it looks like Hank Stram can't not have you in the starting lineup. Something happened before that moment, and this was something my coach told me years later, that I had been invited to play in the college all-star game, which I didn't know. Jim Lynch had been invited to play an all-star game, and he played. My coach felt it was more important, based on what you just said, for me to be in the Chiefs training camp every day, doing what was required. And that's what we did. So what Jim Lynch said, who's a wonderful person, we were great friends all of our lives. We roomed together for eight years, going back to a point in time when those things were not happening much, stated that once he came to Kansas City and he paid attention to what he was seeing, he knew he was not going to be the middle linebacker because my skill was somewhat higher, my physicality was somewhat greater, and that gap of time made a tremendous difference. And we should remind people of what the college all-star game was because perhaps there aren't that many people who are our age and remember it. Not that I'm an old man, I'm actually younger. I'm much younger than I look. <laughs> I've just read about this in books. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but the college all-star game, uh, they would take uh, this collection of college stars and they would play the NFL championship team yes, yeah. from the previous year. And so they would go, you, those guys would go to practice for about two weeks or so, or wouldn't they? Or, yes, they would. And yes. then they would play the Steelers or the Browns or the Giants or the Colts or the Packers, right, whoever had right. won the previous year. And uh, coaches being coaches, uh, pro coaches, I think they were always unhappy when one of their players was in that game because it was two weeks that he wasn't in camp. Right. Right. Which is what, what you're saying about Jim Lynch, mm -hmm. and uh, so your your college coach didn't tell you that you had given, been given this great honor to play in the uh, All-Star but, but the great honor was not that great an honor because he recognized my preparation was such I needed every advantage possible. Because at that point in time, there were no blacks, African Americans playing middle linebacker in the National Football League, so taking time away from that shift that had to occur. Was some, he made the right call on that. So how bold was Hank Stram, the coach of the Chiefs at the time, to say Willie Lanier is going to be our middle linebacker uh, because you had been the first black middle linebacker. You were going to play ahead of a guy who was from Notre Dame, which... Maxwell Trophy winner. Express, correct me if I'm wrong, but Notre Dame, isn't that a pretty good football school? Don't they have a reputation? You mean, you mean they might have some history that people pay close yeah, attention to? Yeah, is that to? correct? Well, yes, I think right. they would fit yeah. that. Notre Dame, Morgan State, right. they're, right. Right. Pretty, they're pretty, <laughs> they're often mentioned in the same conversation. Um, 
how 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 much of a bold move was that on Hank Stram's part? The thing that? the thing that happens with sport that has allowed it to be a a marker in terms of equality, diversity, and all of those kind of points, and it has transparency. So if the coach of the Chiefs, whose team had gone to the Super Bowl the year before and realized they needed someone to be better at the middle linebacker position, had not have selected me over Jim at that moment in time, he would have been saying something to his team that he didn't choose the best person to play. It's transparent. So they can see that. So what occurred in that business is one that has always allowed it, because of its transparency, to shift the reality. So I would say that that, would be, that was the main point, that you, you, you can't tamper with that in terms of the quality of how your team would view you mm -hmm. if for whatever reason you are not allowing the better performer to perform. Generally, players know who can play. That's correct. And like you said, if, if it's obvious to the players who should be out there and the coach isn't putting that guy out there, it really sort of undermines the confidence the players have in the coach. Yes. Uh, and ultimately is a detriment to the team. Right. So, um, did Stram catch much flack for that? I don't. I don't believe so. It. It was. It was kind of interesting that again the players want to play to win. So, because of my skill set, uh, it was very reasonably accepted very quickly that I can help you win. And what you are about is to win and to be efficient in how you do it. Mm -hmm. I think also adding to that, having graduated from college, have been very mature about the process that you're involved with, you had come to get one thing done, and that was to perform well, to hopefully make them better, and to add to the benefit that the team could have. And Lynch moved to outside linebacker. The second he moved outside. I had an injury in my, uh, I think, in ninth game of my rookie year. So Jim had been outside, inside, so he came back. to He played the last four games in the middle, and then at the end of our competition and training camp the second year, he was moved outside, and he played there the rest of his career. Well, that was a pretty good draft by the Chiefs. In the second round, they got two starting linebackers for 11 years. That's uh, pretty good scouting. It really was, and they had a field goal kick in the Hall of Fame named Jan Sinneru, too, so that was pretty good also. He did okay. He did okay. <laughs> Pretty good skier, too, I heard. Yeah, it was, yeah. Would you have a lot of skiing around Kansas City? And no, but he had something in his contract, and he couldn't do that in the off-season. So. <laughs> it's in my contract, too, but, uh, <laughs> but that's more because I can't ski at all. Okay, so. well, that's... It's actually, it's a contract my wife has with me. Okay. Um, we were talking about this the other day uh, uh, to show sort of how the league has changed. Uh, you were saying that in your 11 years with the Chiefs, you never had a black assistant as a coach, and when you retired, there were only 12 in the league. Yeah. And, and now we've got five black head coaches in the NFL. Right. Um, uh, you're on a number of committees, you study these things. Do you feel like the, the Rooney rule has been effective enough in, in giving uh, minority candidates the chance to interview and uh, get head coaching jobs in the NFL? I think, Knowing uh, Dan Rooney and knowing the the essence of how all of these things occurred, that it has done that, and it's hard to sometimes define how much better it might be 
because of the, the numbers that are there, and it moves back and forth. But I think one of the trends that caused me to really feel that it was efficient was that the minority head coach who was fired from a job gets another job. So he is then given an opportunity again like other coaches mm -hmm. in the league. So, so with that, uh, I was on the committee with uh, Commissioner Tagliabue uh, prior to that Rooney rule coming to life and uh, had some commentary that was helpful, I believe, to a lot of those kind of processes occurring. But when Tony Dungy spoke on a Saturday evening at his acceptance speech in Canton and then spoke about the 12 assistant coaches who were in the league when he came in in 77, 77 was my last year, and one of those coaches was named Buck Buchanan, who's in the Hall of Fame himself, and I played with Buck. And to then think back that my career was there for 11 years and the number of African-Americans were that few, was like, wow, that's a stark number mm -hmm. because the number of players in the league have continued to increase, the number of those in the Hall of Fame, all of those type things, the metrics that you speak about. And it's come a long way since then, but it was really interesting for him to, to name the 12 as part of his speech. Funny Tony, Tony Dungy story I got for you, man. I think you'll like this. Okay. Oh, maybe you won't, but okay. I, I really don't care. But uh, <laughs> Tony you do Dungy. Care, but go on. I do care? Yeah, yeah. All yes, right. Okay, go ahead. If you say so. I mean, Tony Dungy was playing for the Steelers. He was his rookie year. I think he was undrafted free agent. Right. And uh, a friend of mine was covering the Steelers for the Pittsburgh Post Gazette. And uh, he was trying to figure out, as beat writers do, who was going to make the team that year. And uh, he, we, he talked he talk to coaches and you get some idea. And, and Tony Dungy's name wasn't coming up as someone right, that they right. were going to keep. So my friend wrote that among the cuts tomorrow will be Tony Dungy. And so Tony Dungy read that. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why you players read the paper, but he read that and packed, packed his bag and was in the hotel lobby ready to, you know, go because he, so he had read that he was going to be cut, read by Vito Stellino, who was in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in the writer's, okay. writer's wing. And he, so he's standing there, and apparently one of the coaches come up and said, what are you doing? And uh, Tony Dungy said, well, I read I was cut. Right. And the coach said, well, don't believe everything you read because you're not cut. Right. And Tony Dungy went on to have a decent career in the right. NFL. And... Uh, <laughs> So, and then Riley got into the Hall of Fame too. He did. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> he hasn't verified his sources. Okay. Well, he missed one. Okay, that's fine. Okay, okay. So, okay. So here's the big topic of of the day of the of the year of the decade, I suppose. Chronic, traumatic encephalopathy. Encephalopathy. Yes, yes. I had to. I can never spell encephalopathy. I always have to it's look at it. Challenging word. It is. Yeah. Concussions and safety risk. You're on the NFL Player Safety Advisory Council. You had a concussion, um, and there's an interesting story there. How you were known as Contact, and you became known as Honey Bear. Yes, sir. Um, that's because you're a big honey bear of a guy. Yes, pleasant guy, pleasant fellow. So. <laughs> Especially on the football field. Yes. You're very pleasant on the football field. Uh, would you mind going through what happened uh, with your concussion? What I'll share is that for any of you who have grandchildren playing the sport, or know of anyone who has grandchildren playing the sport, 
I had an opportunity to create my own Rorschach test, I'll call it that, because 49 years ago, my first year in Kansas City, and Cisco knows this, he saw me play all of my life. As I got bigger, I was playing the same way everyone was instructed, to put the helmet between the numbers, the trunk of the body doesn't move, make the tackle, wrap, lift, and drive. That's what it was. But what happened between high school and college and the pros, the persons you were tackling were bigger. Therefore, there would be more force in terms of acceleration, deceleration of your brain inside your skull. It has nothing to do with the helmet. That only protects. It doesn't stop the movement. So because I was athletic, we were playing in uh, San Diego my rookie year, and I did something that we instruct players not to do now, that was to launch yourself, to dive over someone, to make a tackle. So I caught a blow to the top of the head. And in doing that, I was not unconscious. I didn't have any, any headaches. Practice, not practice, played the rest of the game. We're in San Diego, Charlotte left, flew back to Kansas City. Walking off the field, the field looked like it did that for a little moment, but then it stopped. So I thought everything was fine. Had no issues all week. The next week, we're playing the next game, and I'm on the field about to make the defensive call, not collapse, and I'm out for two hours. And being out for two hours, if any of you in here were to collapse, we call 911. If it's not hard, it's neurological. If you did not have some prior history, it's something serious, especially if it's two hours. So, so with that, uh, all the neurological tests weren't done as they should have been. I started to have vertical double vision. There was an eye doctor who told me to tackle the clearer image if it happened during the game. <laughs> so I'm, I'm well versed to be on the safety committee, Paul, because of that. So I quickly rolled through this. I think coaches still give that advice today. <laughs> okay, I'll leave that alone. So, <laughs> so, so with that, uh, I, I was allowed to return to play and subsequently was attempting to tackle someone and he became two and I got the wrong one. So... I turned and walked off the field, looked at the team physician, told him I'm found out what's wrong with me. I removed myself from the game, and I was sent to Mayo Clinic that next week and told I had had a previously undiagnosed subdural hematoma. So my reference to the physician was, can I have an unequivocal clean bill of health to play? He said, no. God's grace had saved me. It's okay. So my view was that I had to figure out how to play the game 90% safe. This is where Honey Bear came from. If I couldn't have figured out in my own way how to play that game 90% safe, I never would have played another down. So I was able in my own way and thought process that I could actually play at 90% safe. And that's how and that's why I continued to play. Well, what did you do to play at 90% safe? <laughs> the first thing was that even though the helmet had a pad up top, uh, I would not impact the body at all. The shoulders to the waist, the head had to always move away from that. You never have your head in front of a, a movement of a leg because you could get blow from the side. That's going to call the movement to be greater. You have to take a very pragmatic view that you become an analytical player. Emotion has nothing to do with it because emotion can drive you to a decision that's past the point of your reality. So you have to then look at everything about the game as an analyst and protect every step that you are taking and not allow anyone to get into your head that there's something else that you need to do. Because my view is that since I was unconscious two hours, I was never going to be unconscious again because if I thought it was, I never would have played. So if a coach is trying to push, if you haven't been unconscious for two hours, we have to have big discussions because I knew that it took a low blow 
took her eighth undetectable subdural hematoma. It didn't take some major hit. It took a low blow. So my point over all these years has been to continue to say to people of how to manage that. So in the more recent times, Pete Carroll, Seattle Seahawks have talked about tackling on a rugby style. Well, on our safety call on Saturday, Pete Carroll ended up being on our call. So before he got off the call, I introduced myself. He knew who I was. And I said, I would like 15 minutes of his time to talk about what I'm just saying to you all today. And he said he'd be happy to do that because all of us that we are doing is just trying to improve the game for now and later to give youngsters an opportunity to see how they can be involved but not have the risk as great as they have been previously. When you watch players today, knowing what you've been through, knowing you took a low blow, it was a knee to the head, I think, wasn't it? Yes, it, it was. Um, and, and players are now told, there's, in fact, in most NFL locker rooms, there's a diagram of how to tackle. Head up, see the player, wrap up, take him, you know, always see the player. Um, when you watch a game, you don't always see these, these perfect tackling techniques. And you still see players leading with their helmet. You still see players leading with their head. Um, there's an enormous amount of money at stake. Jobs are at stake. They want to get the guy down any time, any way they can. Does, do you, when you see that, does, do you have any concerns about the, the safety of the game? I have grave concerns because it has to be one that the win and the money has nothing to do with how you play the game. And you must get yourself to that point of reference to protect you and the game. What I was able to do in the way that I shifted, that allowed me to be in the Hall of Fame, that allows me to sit here and talk to you, that allows me to have a good clarity of self, that allows me to not having had any surgeries from having played, that allows me to not have any pain from having played, I'd be 71 years old of age in three weeks. It allowed me to do all of those things because when I came back to Mayo Clinic, I told the team that I would never have a pain pill, a cortisone shot, or have a knee drained or aspirated. I did none of that. So mine was a clarity that allowed a view of how the process can work. But it has to be individuals comfortable and hearing that it is possible to do. So, you know, that just became a part of my history. Well, it's interesting. Now, that's a pretty bold stance. Um, you had your degree. You were working on your MBA. Uh, and you saw football as a means to an end, but it wasn't going to be the end of of your life, uh, I take it. So and you, had, you had to have had the courage to be able to walk away from the game if, if coaches had said, that's not going to sell, that's not going to work here, you could do it, tackle It, it, it didn't matter because I'm the one who was unconscious for two hours. Uh, I cannot care what the other person thinks if I'm the one who was unconscious for two hours. So, so, so my view was that I don't know how it could be any more courageous to have not done that mm -hmm. because it would be completely illogical that there would be some activity that I was involved and I'm the one who has suffered the risk of this without the proper concern at the moment and then think that there was some risk whether it had anything to do with the fact that I graduated. Having graduated from college gave the confidence to make a decision. Mm -hmm. 
having started the MBA program, gave a confidence to make a decision. So no question, that was all a part of the process. I've talked to players today, not to, not this very day, but the modern player, and we have, and there's a lot of information out there on head injuries and CTE and all of the the repercussions of that. And I'll, I've talked to players, and I would say to them, like a fullback whose job is to go into the hole, clear the hole for a running back, and he's going in there, and if you watch him, pretty much his head goes down, and he's doing whatever he can to clear the hole. Uh, talk to defensive backs uh, who have been known as headhunters, right. leading with the crown of their helmet. I've talked to coaches and said to them, have you said anything to so-and-so about this, the way he's playing and the long-term effect it might have on his life? And the answer that from the fullback, from the defensive back, from the coach is no, it's part of football. I know what the risk is, I'm going to take it. Do you find that concerning? I do. I find that very concerning because I think that's wrong. I think that since the game is what the game is, if, as an example, you have uh, kickoffs and punt returns that are very risky plays, you should do more to instruct the safety. Offer all the points of reference from a safety standpoint. Still play the game aggressively, but you must present the safety. If NASCAR has a safety meeting before every race, don't they, Paul? They do. They do. And they do it because it's a risk of being in a big vehicle at high speeds going around the oval. But what they do is to have a very dynamic sport, and they have safety meetings before every race. And it's there to design your mind to appreciate what can happen, allow you to be a step ahead of more than maybe you should, still have a great experience but to take away the potential of that one event. I'll offer you from the 215 season, Luke Keekley, Carolina Panthers. Carolina, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Remember the play where he made the impact? His head is in a level position mm -hmm. in the back of a player, and he sort of fell back to yeah. the ground. Mm -hmm. If his head's in this position and lower, it was the same way that Nick Bonacani's son mm -hmm. was at the Citadel, Paul. I saw the game on television on a Saturday. I prayed that it wasn't what I saw, C3, C4 fracture. All you have to do is be in the wrong position one time. So what happens is that you don't have an option to not think about it because all it takes is one position. If that's the neck and your head is at this point, you step going forward, that is taking your body downward, that blow goes to the back of your neck, it's C3, C4 fracture. Mm -hmm. There was a kid in Kansas City, Pat Bickle, 160 pounds, 165 pound linebacker, high school, 1971, playing against a 230 pound running back. Instead of just going for the leg, he went for a higher position, C3, C4. We were out at Craig Institute in Denver, Colorado, uh, and a lot of kids who were injured on Friday nights were flown out by ambulance the next day. We went to visit, and here's this young man, a quad, in an in iron lung at that time. So me and Dee had to go outside and chat about my continuing to play. Because part of my feeling was that I needed to just go inside, shake everybody's hand, and be gone. But I didn't because I understand. But I was observing a young man who maybe some coach didn't mention safety. Paul, there's nothing wrong with the game. The game is a tremendous activity 
throughout our country. Mm -hmm. It has the great, greater purpose, I think, at times, that is beneficial at times of stress and war and all those type things. But that safety issue need always be spoken about. Why? Well, Sure, Willie. Play to the crowd. Play to the crowd. <laughs> I also appreciate you noticing that I've covered NASCAR. It's, uh, it's a little known factor in my resume. <laughs> um, so you and I were discussing something right before we began, and uh, fortunately we didn't come to blows. So I'm not sure how that would have worked out for me. But um, and this is regarding kickoffs in the NFL. Yes. Uh, they're they, they're bringing the ball out. If on a touchback, the ball's coming out to the 25. And the now, theory, yeah, the, the, it, was come, 20, it was the 20, okay. but they moved it to the 25. The theory being that if uh, a guy fields the ball in the end zone, he's going to be less likely to, to bring it out because the average return on a kickoff is about 23, 23 and a half yards. So there's no real advantage to running the ball out of the end zone if you're going to give, they give you 25, so why take 23? And as I observed at practice, the Redskins practice during training camp, they're already looking for loopholes in the rule. And what they would like to do is pooch the ball down to, say, the 5, the 1, even the 10, and you know, charge down the field and stop the guy at, say, the 20. And Willie took fairly great offense at this because he's on this player safety committee and he wants this rule to make a difference. And I th as long as coaches have an op uh, a way to find a loophole, they're going to do it. So my question to Willie is, how do you close a loophole? Who do coaches work for? They work for the owners of the team. Okay, so if the coach works for the owner, and I instruct you not to do that, then you won't do that. I I'll do it like this. About five years ago, safety committee that I'm on, we had the kickoff moved from the 30 to the 35. And by moving it from the 30 to the 35, the whole idea was to reduce the number of runbacks because the greatest amount of injuries occur on kickoff returns and punt returns because you have more distance to go before the impact occurs and the physics create the outcome. So with that being said, there was certain energy at that time by coaches concerned with one of their great plays were being taken out of the game. What we did in that first year was to reduce the number of kickoffs by 50%. But in the very first game in the 2011 season, the Green Bay Packers were playing the New Orleans Saints in Green Bay. There was a thought that if the ball was deep into the end zone, the coaches would not bring it up. A record was set that night, 108 yards, <laughs> on that same evening that that rule went into place on a Thursday in Green Bay. So the point was, you still could have the excitement, but you were able to reduce the risk of injury. Sure. So the same point should occur. If what you are doing is attempting to have rules that reduces the risk of injury, and that is paramount in your plan, then if the coaches are trying to design pooch punts that will fall in a different place, then enhancing uh, the greater risk for the person trying to make the play, I don't think that's right. I won't argue with you on that point. I'll just say that coaches are coaches and they're going to do what they can to win. And 
I don't know all the owners, but I know a few of the owners, and they're not going to tell a coach to do something in the name of safety if they feel like safety is going to keep them from getting to the playoffs. That's just what I'm saying. So what happens on Sunday night in in in, in Canton if the field has some issue? I mean, I mean, I think it. I don't know how you can do both. I don't know how. Not you. I'm talking about collectively. I don't know how. I thought I'd just been made commissioner. Oh, <laughs> to, 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 to have both sides of that equation and not be able to draw a line that has said, no, we aren't doing that. What we're doing is trying to reduce the number of kickoffs. Mm -hmm. So if that's what we are trying to do, I understand your desire to win. But I also understand that you said earlier that this coach had not talked to that young man about safety. Right. Okay. So therefore, I don't think you, as the coach, might have as big a position of relevance as you feel you have, because you didn't ever really talk about safety. We are trying to just make it better. I appreciate that. I'll offer this suggestion, and yes, you sir. can claim it. You can claim it to yours at the next player safety meeting. Okay. That's how that's how generous I am. I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm here to I'm here to help. That's why I'm here. I think that if you move the kickoff to the forty that you would probably find, I would bet 75% of the kickoffs would not be returnable because they would be kicked out of the end zone. I'm just, so there you go. See, what we've done, we have worked together to solve this problem. We, no, but we weren't trying to remove all of it. Really? No, we weren't trying to remove the kickoff completely because if that were the case, we just bring it out to the 2025 and start the game. You don't even have to go through the process of kicking it. Well, isn't that something that's under discussion? I won't speak on that. Ah. <laughs> Was that in their comment? <laughs> so I, there's one thing I would like to get to before we go into questions. And uh, you mentioned that your first year in the NFL, which... It was, that was the NFL then. It was, it was NFC, AFC. Yes. Yeah, the merger was the year before, so year it was before, NFL, yeah. I think, it was, I think I read that it was like 1970 before they really worked yes, out all the details. Right. You started an MBA program as a rookie. Yeah. So you began preparing for life after football almost immediately upon entering pro football. And I'm guessing that's because even if you felt like you could play for 10 or 15 years, you were still going to be 32, 35, 36 when you were done. Um, what type of, why did you have that foresight, and do you think that more players today need to have that kind of foresight? The main thing is that you didn't go to college to be a football player, baseball player, basketball player, because there's no degree from college in any of those areas. So I went to college to get a degree in business. I like to say to people that all of you who graduated from college heard some words that said, all rights and privileges here to appertaining. That's what you went to college for, because that's the one that gives you the confidence of your future. So part of the thought was that football was going to get in the way of education because other students who graduated were going on to grad school. So now here I am involved with this entity called football. Because I really didn't, I didn't go to college to be a professional football player. I went to get the degree. And once I was on track to get the degree, there were scouts saying they thought I might have the ability to play. But it was not one of even thinking about if you make it, how many years might, whatever. It was just uh, continuing with what you were doing from an educational standpoint 
and trying to layer in opportunities that would allow you to keep the whole process going. Well, you know, I did go to college to become a professional football player. See what happened? And you, <laughs> I'm sorry, I apologize. Imagine, imagine my disappointment when I got to VCU and they didn't have a football team. <laughs> I needed some better guidance there, I think. I have two more questions, then I would like to open up questions for the audience. Um, the NFL minimum salary for, for a rookie in 2016 is $450,000. Now, without adjusting for inflation, in your entire career, did you earn that much money? I earned more than that, and the reason that I earned more than that was because I had an opportunity to leave the game with a position at that point when I came back to Richmond was Philip Morris. Mm -hmm. so, so they had to negotiate with me about continuing to play. And that's the reason, the only reason why I was above that figure was because of the educational background and the ability to have an option. You had some that's leverage. Good. Yes. In those days, those days, like we're old men, um, the football wasn't a year-round sport. Correct. I mean, you, when you when the season ended, you came back and other players came back and worked jobs or did something to prepare yourself for what what happened when you weren't playing football. Is that is that right? It was, and some were able to work out situations that uh, you could go to to school even during the season because what would happen is that you didn't have the full day in the week with football. You might have Tuesday coming back from one to three. You might have Wednesday from 9 to 12. So you could create a schedule, either school or other work-related activities, that you could, you could manage it at that time. Now they are fully engaged from 7 in the morning to 7 at night, whatever, all those numbers that you know. But you aren't able to do that. Well, it's also a year-round sport. It's, uh, <laughs> players are conditioning all the time. Right. And, and while coaches and GMs and uh, the, the uh, teams talk about setting up programs, it's really hard to do because uh, the player's f full focus is almost on making the team because if you're just a rookie, yeah, you pick, make you're making $450,000. Right. And, you know, that's, that's even more than a sports writer makes. I understand. That. <laughs> it's hard to believe. Now, this is, this is my most important question of the evening for you. And I'm hoping that you'll give me a very insightful answer. Yes, sir. Because you're, you're well-versed in the stock markets and the ver mutual funds and all that. If I, yes, correct? sir. I, I would say so. So my question is, and take all the time you need before answering this, because I would like a very good answer. Yes, sir. When is the next market correction going to occur? <laughs> I might not be able to give you the answer as when the next market correction is going to occur. I will give you to stocks that you should own really? through both of those or whatever that cycle happens to be. All right. One of those is a company that is in town that since 1900 has been the best performing stock in the market, and that's Altria, formerly Philip Morris. The other is one that Warren Buffett happens to be running called Berkshire Hathaway. And the reason I offer that one, not just because of the work that Buffett has done. He's my boss, by the way. That's true. But the same way... Uncle Warren, we call him. But, the, but, <laughs> but Warren was shown in Cannon, Ohio last week with a 93, which is in Dominica Sioux, 
because he said he'd come to camp, but he was busy this year. And it was just interesting in, 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 a, in a picture, uh, that video that was, that was shot. The same way you have backup quarterbacks, you wonder who's the backup if and when the time comes that he exits in whatever way. There were two people hired at Berkshire Hathaway five years ago. One is from Charlottesville, Virginia. His name is Ted Worschler. The other one is Todd Combs. Ted, if you go check his record, Peninsula Capital Advisors when he was in Charlottesville is as good as anyone I think you could ever find to be confident about the future. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting because he's someone that I met because of Wheat first 30 some years ago and I've sort of tracked him and uh, I'll just offer this, this point of reference. I didn't have a million dollars in 2000 and Ted started his own Peninsula Capital Advisors in 2000, but you had to have the cash not paying in over time. He was going to just manage his money for his family office until 11 when Buffett tapped him. And I had such joy being able to call him and wish him congratulations because I know this man and saw him being tapped by that gentleman. He paid back to his investors of almost $11 million, 2% magic fee and 20% carry because that's how bright he was. So did I do okay with that? Uh, sounds good to me. Okay, fine. So, so you, you come for football, you leave with investment strategies. I, I don't know how we can give you a better program than that. <laughs> so now we're going to throw it up to you. And if you have any questions, please ask. And we have microphones around the room. And we'll start in the back here. Okay. Very entertaining and informative. You mentioned in the, in the course of it uh, several coaches. Could you tell us uh, some of the coaches that you regarded? And I'll start with Mr. Lanier, and of course, Paul, you can check in, check in too, because you've been you close yeah. with them. But uh, some of the outstanding coaches and what makes them outstanding? I think this, the thing that makes a coach is no different than makes any of the rest of us the, the purpose, the dedication, the uh, the heart, the God-fearing individual, someone who is trying to mold you for now and later, that if it's just one, and this is interesting the way I'll say this, the coach has to get the wins to stay. But in the midst of that, the coach from a high school, college standpoint has to give you the life skills, and you're still trying to do it at the pro level, but you have to have a relationship. You have to have a guy who you really feel has the fullness of you involved with the need to perform to gain the bigger outcome. So, so with that, uh, a, lot of, a lot of the coaches that you read about, that you see, and you hear about a lot, and Paul has seen a number of them, they, they are men of a lot of character who really have the essence of the game on their sleeve, and they're trying to make it good now and better later. And I would add to that one thing that uh, Joe Gibbs uh, often said, and uh, I refer to Joe Gibbs a fair amount because he's really one of the best coaches I was ever around, and he always said that football and, and business or any business is, is a people business, and the first thing you have to do is pick the right people, and he was very big on picking the right people for his coaching staff, and he was adamantly concerned about picking the right when he started, it was like 43 to 46, and then finally 53 players for his team. 
and he, was, he would constantly remind you that this was a people business. And he had several assistants who went on and became head coaches, and they weren't as successful as, as Gibbs, but then, of course, that's a pretty high bar. But one thing that, that he would mention about occasionally about assistants was they were, they were excellent technically, designing plays and knowing where another team's weakness was and how to exploit it. But they were so technical that they forgot the people side of it. And you can never do that and hope to be successful, particularly in a game like football, because you're asking so much of, of the players and asking so much of them physically and mentally. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's not certainly not as long as a baseball season, but it's a 16-game car wreck of a grind. And so just, just the importance of picking the right people is one thing Gibbs always talked about. Back here. Uh, I didn't hear any discussion of what seems to me to be an important part of football these days, and that is social behavior uh, revolving around or uh, erupting from uh, football players. Um, and the, the culture or ethos of, you know, whatever it is. I, I hope this makes a little bit of sense, but uh, I didn't hear you all address that that issue at all about the uh, the behavior mm -hmm. of football players and uh, the administration of that issue. Well, no, Willie really wants to talk about that right now. Well, I don't have a problem. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, th I think what happens is that the same way that you hire people to work for your organization, you reach for maturity of those individuals. And this is where I come back to the degree, graduating from college, having the emphasis that you want to resume to reflect the maturity of who you are. If I were involved at a, that high level in the sport, I would want you to be that close to having graduated because I think that ties into how you view yourself. And if it ties into, into how you view yourself, you start requiring and demanding more. Uh, the next thing that can happen at times is with some of the penalties, which can be tremendous in terms of cost, you'll see some of the young men on a sort of a treadmill continuing to have issue after issue after issue. Well, if you allow that to happen, it affects your organization. It affects the way your team having a chance to win. I played in Kansas City for 11 years, and I had five penalties in 11 years, and two of them were intended. Okay. And, and that sounds odd, but so I saw Bobby Bell in, Can in Canada last week, and we were just talking about this. We had a decor, a decorum that required better of ourselves as well as the other fellows that we played with. So with that, you try to reduce, you try to reduce. But many times you have to be very aggressive in how you pursue that outcome. All right, Paul, your comment. Well, in a, a number of instances, it's a small minority of the players who do these things and get the most publicity. Um, Willie and, as, and me as well uh, didn't grow up in an era of social media where Twitter was such a large part of things where everyone has an iPhone and everything you do is going to be 
you got to figure everything you do and everything you say is going to be recorded by someone somewhere. Uh, and that catches a lot of players uh, in moments they think are private that aren't so private. Um, I don't know. I can't really address what this current crop of Redskins will do. Uh, I, don't, I can't vouch for their character at this point. I will say that through training camp, they've been a very cordial, professional group of players. And I would think probably there'll be fewer problems among them. And one thing that general managers are really looking for are, are always for talented players. Great players who are problems will get number of chances, but even they wear, their acts wear thin. But uh, the coaches and general managers need stability. They need to know that this guy is going to be there on Sunday. And if they have to have worry about having a bail bondsman on call to bail the guy out, then they're, they're just going to wear thin of him once he proves he's not as valuable as he once was. Um, I don't know. There are always going to be immature players. There are always going to be players. Um, and again, going back to the $450,000, that's the minimum rookie contract. And you're 21 or 22 years old. The Redskins have a guy who just turned 21. He was 20 when they drafted him. Uh, I've talked to him, and he's one of the more mature players on the team, fortunately. But suddenly you've got, you've got $450,000 minus taxes. They take taxes out of in Yes, yes. They do. Yeah. Taxes yeah. all with hell, yes. Sir. <laughs> so you've got all this money and all this, all this time on your hands. And funny, is, I, this, this, this story always amused me. There was a player on the Redskins whose name I won't mention. And he, he went out. He was never as successful as they wanted him to be. And he was, his nickname was 50-50 because the players, the players gave him that nickname because 50% of the time he was going to be successful and 50% of the time he was going to fail. And they knew it, and the coaches knew it, and everyone knew it. That, so they gave him, that, gave him that nickname. And so it sort of came, became obvious one night why he was 50-50. That was because at about midnight, he went to a nightclub and handed his keys to his car, which I think was probably a huge SUV, to the person he thought was doing the valet parking. <laughs> Except it was just the guy standing at the curb, <laughs> and, and he drove off with the car. And so the next day, the news reports come out the next day that this player's car had been stolen, and then finally it was recovered. And when he walked out to practice the next day, of course, a few people had questions as to what were you doing, how did that happen, and he, you know, his, his answer was, well, that wasn't me. Well, it was him, and he did lose his car, but he got it back. And that's what happens. You, sh you short-circuit your career when you do that. And if you're, you've really got to be smart, you've got to take care of, of everything. Otherwise, what could be, I think the average NFL career is like three and a half years yeah, three now. Three and a half, four. Yeah. What could be a four-year career, what could be an eight-year career because a four-year four career, in part because of the mistakes you make. So. Uh, I've got a question, uh, and I, it goes back to the safety issue. And I, I know this probably does not apply as much to the college or to the professional football level, but 
Let me give you a hypothetical situation and ask you how you would address that. <laughs> you're 35 years old and your son comes up to you and he's been playing football uh, in his middle school and he wants to play football for his high school. Uh, <clears throat> but you know that there's coaches there that are teaching uh, at the high school level that you don't have confidence in. Their, their favorite phrase is, shake it off. What do you advise or how do you approach your child or your grandchild that wants to play football and you know that the situation at the earliest level, middle school, high school, is not the environment that you would um, ideally like for him to be in? You don't let him play. <laughs> you, you address the individual with the reality of what your expectations are and how they must be met at all times with your child. And if you don't have a group of parents who are collective in that view, you might, if you truly want your child to participate, you might have to have him play in some other area. But I will say to anybody's child, as I said to my own, as a parent, your responsibility is for the safety and care of your child. You defer that to nobody. And you allow no one to get into your mind that that's acceptable. I'll give you two examples. One. There was a mother, single parent, Kansas City, whose child was playing sport, and I was talking to her. So I asked her, what things have happened in terms of coaches talking to you and your son that you felt uncomfortable about? She said, well, this coach had told him, he was, I guess, a defense player, to tackle and try to hurt the other player. I said, did you think that was right? She said, no. I said, did you say anything to the coach? She said, no, he's a coach. I said, no, you and the mother. It's your responsibility. Anything else that you can think of? She said, well, that was something. So what are you talking about? She said, on a, on a field, a play where there are four different fields where different weight levels of youngsters who play little league football occurs, they were playing on this field, and the field over there, a medevac helicopter flew in and flew back out. And I asked her what happened. She said, a kid died. And I said, and then what did you say to your son? She said, he wants to play. I'll say again, you're the mother, and it's your responsibility as a mother and father to offer the proper direction. So that's how I would answer that. You can go ahead. I'll, I'll just want, when Steve Spurrier was coach of the Redskins, he told a story about uh, he was, uh, his son wanted to play Sandlot football, and so he let him. And he went out and watched the practice, and he was appalled at what he saw. The coaches were just teaching all the wrong techniques, and they were doing everything. They were yelling. It was just a, a really bad situation. And what Steve Spurrier did was pull his son out of that team and lay down the rule that he wouldn't play until he was in high school. And uh, just like Willie said, if you're in a situation where the high school coach is not being responsible, it's your responsibility to say so. Now, none of my sons played football, but they played basketball and ran. And um, if there was an injury, like one of our sons had a sprained ankle one time, and he just not, did not feel comfortable playing. And I said to him, then you tell the coach that you're not going to play. You don't feel comfortable playing. And if, and if there's any problem, then your mother and I will get involved. Fortunately, when he told the coach that his ankle was bothering him and he couldn't play, the coach said, then you're not going to play. But he really, you can't, just have, you can't be benign about these things. You really have to be involved. 
think we have time for two more questions. Um, oh, here's one here. Go okay, ahead. we'll make it three. Uh, <laughs> I've got one right here, okay. and then Graham has one, and there's a gentleman up in the front. Right. So we're going to start here. Speaking of behavior, do you have any uh, stories of your experience, such as Lombardi catching, horning, and Taylor sneaking out of camp and saying, gentlemen, if the penalty is worth it, I want to go with you? Well, I certainly have no knowledge of anything <laughs> such as that that I could share in mixed company. Uh, but I will say this in many places for men might say this somewhere along the way, boys might be boys. That's all I'll say. Mr. Lanier, I want to commend you on <clears throat> your approach to college, was to get an education. I also want to thank you for what you're doing <clears throat> to help prevent problems being more safe. But I would present you with a challenge. <clears throat> Too many students or athletes go to college these days with the idea of only playing athletics, as evidenced by the fact that they'll switch schools, not because the school's any better, but the team's better. So I think a challenge for you would be to <clears throat> talk to these athletes and get them to understand that academics should precede athletics. I told, I, told, I told agree with you on that, and I think that for um, the parent has to instill in their children that the reason you chose the school was for you to get the degree, to hear those words. Because in my life, sport has nothing to do with me. The words of all rights and privileges thereto appertaining meant I'm equal in America. I'm equal at a place that tried to deny me opportunities that other people had. Athletics didn't change that. Yeah, I made more money. The mind came from education. So for those of us who were in Virginia saw what happened in Prince Edward County after Brown versus Board of Education in 59 and 64, well then if you didn't have the education, you didn't have the ability to compete. And the reality was that that's always had to be paramount. Now, I can see these larger numbers that people are paid, but you still have to have the education. So I think many times, having been on the board of a university, and when it appeared that the athletic program was going to have its own autonomy, which is idiocy as far as I'm concerned, the advocacy of the university is to do one thing, and that is the minds of the students who attend there. The football athletic program is a subset to that. Anytime a board of visitors allows that not to be the case, in my view, then they've done wrong by our wonderful students in this country. Okay, I think we have our last question. Thank you both for being here. This has been great. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went down to the Redskins training camp uh, because I really just wanted to see what that was like. I took my binoculars along. Uh, one of the reasons I did that is because I really wanted to see the faces of the players up close. I came away from that experience with uh, some very, very strong impressions. The first one was how big everybody was and how, how much bigger players are now. That was the first thing. 
The second thing that struck me was uh, how very young they were in these great big bodies. That was a really amazing thing for me. You, you think of somebody who's that large ought to be a lot older, and they're very, very young. And I, along with that, I got to thinking about how much money they make and how many of these players in their very first job make more, more money than a lot of us do in a lifetime in a career. I guess in thinking about that further, and I also was thinking about what I was like when I was the age of some of those young players and how that money, which can be so very seductive, would, might have affected me. And I really got to thinking about how very difficult that must be for a lot of players who may not have the maturity level they need to handle that kind of money. But the other thing I was really thinking about is how, how very important mentors must be uh, in any part of life, but maybe especially in the, re the arena of sports where things move so very quickly. And for you, Mr. Lanier, I wanted to ask a couple of things, uh, just a two-part question. Number one, and you entered the NFL at a, a very crucial time in our country when things were really changing. I was wondering if you had a mentor, if there's somebody who you point to or maybe a couple of people who were your mentors. That's number one. And number two, I'm sure you get yourself in a position where you're in a position to mentor maybe some of the younger players. And I'm wondering what your advice to them is as they enter this, this very exciting field of their endeavor. Well, I don't know. I think you can look at people who are being instructive to you in your life and your development. You could define them as mentors in terms of your coaches, your teachers, uh, your parents, anybody who's offering you insight and, and view. So, so with that, from a league standpoint, once coming to Kansas City, and I was saying this to some people over the weekend, this person named Buddy Young, the first black executive in the NFL, Buddy was a proactive individual. And in 1968, my, sec, my first off season, I flew into New York, met with Buddy, and he started introducing me to corporate executives who happened to be minority to show that there is another place for you and the steps that you could take. So you would then end up having different people who would try to be offering you the benefit if that word is mental. So many times, I think all of us have to look in the mirror ourselves and see how easy we were mentored by others because sometimes it's not as easy a relationship to have when you're the one who's trying to accept the information and sometimes you might get a little edgy about it or whatever. But it's something that is continuing to attempt to be done. If the word is mental, I would have mentor any of God's children anytime, anywhere because that's the way I think all of us should be programmed. Uh, trying to inspire, trying to offer a view, trying to give, 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 because if you assist one person in how they can shift their view, then it's all helpful. And I think in terms of your own journey and legacy, those are the kind of things that everybody should be doing for someone else, because at some point in time, all of us were the same place as the other person. And what you're trying to do is just accept that and be mindful of it and continue to go forward. Let's give Paul Woody and Willie Lanier a hand for a break program.